Hello there and welcome to Make Me an Island. Firstly, an apology. It has been way too long. All my fault, of course. It won't happen again. Secondly, a promise. Now that we're back, back where we started at level five, phase two, plan B, etc. It's time to activate the private service broadcasting emergency lockdown service button once again. And with that, I hereby declare this podcast a weekly service for the duration of lockdown number two. Shows will be delivered on Sunday mornings. Keep holy the Sabbath and go easy October. Thousand kilometers from the epicenter of our recovering COVID fever dreams and 3,000 meters above sea level. That's music by Los Chapis from the city of Ayacucho in the high Andean plains of Peru. That gem of an instrumental tune which I have loved a long time dates from 1981, but a decade and a half previously, a self-proclaimed musical tourist and sound recordist by the name of David Lewiston made two extended trips to the city in 1967 and 68 in order to capture the sound of Ayacucho in its most spectacular incarnation, full flight, festival mode. The results are pure Peruvian gold. 
Here's another one of those musical hotspots we're fond of escaping to in times of trouble. Now, I'm not a qualified meteorologist, but the amount of colourful light and heat infused in this joyous music could be just the ticket to dispel any looming October clouds in your neck of the woods. So we'll be setting ourselves up at high altitude camp for the duration of the first half of episode 29. Then, in the second half, we'll be cooling down with music from the cold seas when we take a deep dive into the album from Ocean's Floor in the company of its creator, composer extraordinaire and lifetime honorary islander, Linda Buckley. But first, back to Peru. Hueno is a type of music found not just in Peru, but all along the high Andean plain that runs through Bolivia, Chile and Argentina too. It's mountain music inextricably intertwined with the landscape and society of its creation. The Ayacucho David Lewiston encountered in 1967 was a vibrant smorgasbord of sight and sound. As darkness fell, the squares filled with music, and rippling Wayno melodies played on the charango punctured the sweet-smelling thin night air. Andean communities have a powerful musical tradition inherited from the Inca Empire. Nearby Cusco was the capital of that same empire from the 13th century, and the 600 kilometers of high-altitude peaks and troughs that connected to Ayacucho is terrain steeped in musical culture. The Inca society was based on collective effort, and their success outweighed the individuals. 
So it was with the magical sound of the guitar ensembles that Lewiston encountered in the streets of Ayacucho. The harmonic effect of the many variations of Spanish guitar, as well as the guitar-like banduria and the aforementioned native chirango chiming in unison, is the definition of divining rapture through mutual cooperation and support. As it was in Inca times, the purpose of music in the society that Lewiston encountered in 1967 was primarily spiritual and closely associated with religious rituals and celebrations. As well as guitars, Spain also brought Catholicism, and for the last few hundred years, carnival time in Ayacucho takes place during Semana Santa, Holy Week of Easter. These are the days that the famed guitar ensembles spend 12 months of the year practicing for. In 1967, Don Luis Camasco and his band Conjunto Mensajeros Dos de Mayo were the high kings of the streets. Some of the key performances that Lewiston captured on his first visit to Ayacucho were those given by this gifted group who, as guitar makers by day, made their instruments as well as their own rules. Conjunto Mensajeros Dos de Mayo are named after the street in which the recording takes place and there's an immense amount of pride involved in their life's work. So that's all about the sound. In terms of the sights, a quick Google search of Ayacucho Carnival will summon pictures that should help you visualise the spectacularly colourful nature of the scene. Adding sight and smell to this intoxicating sound sure makes for a heady mix. Don Luis Camasco, for the win. Mm -hmm. 
Live and direct from the square from whence they got their name, that's Mensajeros Dos de Mayo, featuring Don Luis Camasco. Now, for a music that's impossible to separate from the fervour of communal celebrations, these recordings go right to the beating heart of the matter. The Incas used the one word, taqui, to describe dance, music and singing. These remarkable field recordings bring us right up close to the place where all three strands meet, merge and ascend into magic. Just one word for it, taqui. idea of using one word for singing, dancing and music is one that I love. Just like we encountered in a previous episode in the Congo, here the activity of singing and playing music is always tied to the dance. You can't have one without the others. The rule of thirds also applies to the composition of the sound, as there tends to be traces of all three of the holy trinity of Andean, Spanish and African elements at play at all times. Andean influences can best be heard in the wind instruments and the shape of the melodies, while the African influences can be heard in the rhythm and percussion sounds, and European influences can be heard in the harmonies and stringed instruments. 
As we have heard time and again throughout the Make Me an Island series, it's at the confluence of such intertwining tributaries that magical thinking takes over and new musical forms emerge. One of my favourite pieces in the whole collection is this uniquely brilliant and uplifting hymn of praise set to just marimba and drums. When the path to redemption is laid out in tune with music this sweet, it's definitely time to hit the road. David Lewiston was a London-born, classically trained pianist and a musical tourist as opposed to an ethnomusicologist like Alan Lomax. Two years previously, he had taken leave from his job as a financial journalist for Forbes magazine, invested in one of the world's first portable stereo tape recorders, a concert tone 727, and headed for Bali, where he spent two weeks recording the clanging, shimmering gong orchestras called gamelans. Back in New York City, he sent the recordings to the Nonsuch label along with a pitch to do some more. Thus began the Explorer series and his dream job. The trips to Peru were his inaugural journeys into sound with the help of a budget and a plan. He chose his destination well and the results are nothing short of stunning. There's a feeling for sound at work in everything he does. 
The collections are peppered with records of casual encounters with extraordinary musicianship in Ayacucho's streets and squares. Lewiston was so adept at putting himself in the perfect position to capture such magic. Here, he hits record upon spotting the weekly musical procession that accompanies the village mayors on their journey home from church. The soundtrack for this is routinely performed on accordion, flute and the lesser spotted conch. Step aside, everyone. A large part of being a dedicated musical tourist with recording equipment in a sonic Shangri-La is being able to go with the flow and act on instinct and impulse as the situation demands. No sooner had the musical procession at Pizak passed him by before Lewiston was asking the conch player for a solo turn, which didn't disappoint. deeper you get into these recordings, the more profound the sense of place becomes. Before we leave the streets of Ayacucho, I want to return again to the king in his own domain, Don Luis Camasco. Lewiston writes in his notes that everywhere the conjunto mensaqueros the Dos Mayo went, Don Luis's daughter Nelly followed. Having tried repeatedly to coax her to sing, her father explained that when she was small she had a really sweet voice, but a nun at school told her it was a sin to sing. After some more gentle persuasion, she relented. A field recording on a Peruvian street it may well be, but the raw power of this song and the sheer staggering spirit in the delivery renders it equal to anything ever produced in a studio. If your song has been silenced for too long, this is how you sing it back to life when it comes your turn to shine.
Wiston's search for the beautiful took him indoors too. In the school of music he encountered the city's most eminent harp teacher, Antonio Sulca. The instrument is often heard as part of the string ensembles, but Sulca's staggering virtuosity and dexterity is captivating on a whole different level. Over to you, maestro. point I keep returning to, but sometimes, oftentimes, music is rooted so deep within a culture and is so expressive of a particular place that it becomes somehow characteristic of it in a physical sense. The peaks of the high melody line mixed with the foundational bass notes in this next piece by Antonio Sulca is a case in point. There's roughly 3,000 feet of air beneath its wings. Thank you. 
Now, those of you paying extra close attention may have heard the crowing of a cock deep in the mix right there, because Senior Sulka lived in a small pueblo outside of Ayacucho, far from the madding crowd. The farmyard sounds are more audible still in this next piece. No distraction, however, from the dexterity and fluidity that truly sets apart his delightful playing. there is a level of musicianship that is simply astounding. Setting aside some of the carnival bluster that he saves for his street persona, this is again Don Lewis Camasco in uncharacteristically quiet and subtle mode on a beautiful tune called Torrelay Tarot. Thank you. 
well as an abundance of virtuosity, there's a strangeness and mystery to some of Lewiston's recordings from Peru that defy easy or in fact any categorization. Haunting, beguiling and bewitching in equal parts, this is Voy Abando. <laughs> David Lewiston's recordings from Peru are collected in three volumes of the Explorer series through the label None Such. Voy a Bando, which you've just heard, is on Peru Fiesta's Music of the High Andes. The other two are Kingdom of the Sun and Black Music in Praise of Ochala and Other Gods. All three are pure fire. Now this is a rhetorical question, but do you know that feeling when a flash of light from one direction forces you to change course and that new path to the waterfall brings you somewhere unexpectedly special? So it was with me in Peru once I got my head into these recordings. You've heard of the gift that keeps on giving? That's another rhetorical question. Well, Peru is that gift, and happily for me, the deeper you dig, the better it gets. You dig? The Institute of Ethnomusicology in the Pontifical Catholic University of Peru have been recording traditional music across the country since the 1930s. The Smithsonian Folkways label in the US have released a number of collections from this very source. The scale of these projects and the sheer breadth of musical wonders contained therein means it's a story for another day here on Make Me an Island. But I want to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. Just a flavour, okay? From 1936... This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) ¶¶ 
So there's Das and This from 37.
David Lewiston went on to travel the world recording and releasing several dozen editions of the Explorer series. The considerable love he invested in his work in Peru never waned, and he continued working till close to his passing, aged 88, in 2017. He left behind an archive of 400 hours of material that is in the process of being compiled as a comprehensive box set by the Dust to Digital label. I, for one, am very grateful for his efforts. The love pursued with ardour is indeed the greatest love of all. Now, in order to build us a bridge back to Ireland across the equator, I am going back to his collection one more time to present a recording of a shepherd boy from Cusco playing the whistle in a manner vaguely reminiscent of the Irish style. I said vaguely. At most, perhaps one or two of the 40 shades of green on display here. So, it looks like we've reached that part of the podcast where the links get more tenuous and the jokes, such as they are, a little ropier. This is no joke whatsoever, however. While we're talking whistles, this summer I spent a lot of time in another high-altitude spot 9,800 kilometres due northwest of Lima, called Kerry. My two best friends on those epic spins were none other than Paddy Maloney and Sean Potts. Listening to this music blindfolded is quite the Irish trip in itself, but once you've heard it while tailing a horse and cart on the Abbey Dorney Road out of Artfert, there's literally no turning back. And there was a sheepdog on the trailer. No joke.
all 40 shades of green present and correct there, yet somehow vaguely reminiscent of the Peruvian colours too, don't you think? If you could be forgiven for mistaking it sonically for something from somewhere else, then the title, The Conic Teffers, is a bit of a dead giveaway. Now that we're back here on Terra Firma, I want to remind you that you're listening to Make Me an Island, made in Ireland by me, Donald and Ian, and him, down there, made in Cork, brewed in Dublin, Mr Ian Cudmore. And if you would like to support the making of these islands, you can do so on Patreon. To those of you who have already done so, I owe you everything. Not only do you keep this show on the road, but you keep the lights on and Cora in biscuits. A reminder too that for the next five Sundays, you can set your clock by us. We promise. Now also made in Cork, and in both cases with wings spread far and wide across freshly conquered lands, this next piece of music features the combined significant talents of Irla O'Lenard and Linda Buckley. And in the second half of our show today, I'm delighted to welcome Linda back to discuss the making of the wonderful record which it opens from Ocean's Floor.
Linda, you're very welcome back to Make Me an Island. It's great to have you back. And on the day that your record uh, received uh, a four-star review in The Guardian, you're especially welcome and congratulations on both the album and the review. <laughs> Thanks a million, Donald. Yeah, well, it's it's so good to be back talking about this record. We've talked before um, and uh, we talked about it exploding stars, which is the record that, or sorry, the uh, piece of music that ends this album from Ocean's Floor. But um, we've just listened to uh, what is uh, the incredible opening quartet of tunes with Irlo Leonard. And um, so just to begin, Linda, in terms of the connection with Shanos and your engagement with the forum, um, is that something that goes back a long way or where does your interest stem from? Well, that would have been there since I was quite young, all right, because um, my father would have been a traditional Irish musician. He still is, plays the accordion and sings. So mm-hmm. I was always hearing tunes and Irish songs in the house when I was younger. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just from hearing it from, from different uh, brothers and sisters over the years. And then years later, I was studying in my undergrad of music in UCC and I started studying Shanos with Eilish Nuhulawan, who um, is from Ballyvorney. So she actually would be very close in location to ear yeah. uh, and then years later I met him and you know I always loved his voice anyway since I was kind of 12 years old or something I remember mm-hmm. hearing him first on the radio and and loving it and um so it's lovely to you, you know years later meet him and become friends with him and and work together on these songs mm-hmm. and in I, it's deeply I, ingrained I think this love of the Irish language and, and of this kind of um ornamental style of singing in a way oh yeah um that's that sounds like it it is ingrained as you say but in terms of what you bring to it and the settings for the music um i guess it's it's audacious in some ways to approach you know the the form and and uh, to apply you know your um the, the the music to it uh, but it does so so successfully and i think uh that um, one of the great things about the review today was that it really got sort of what the merging of those two things uh, are the meaning of that. Um, but so the the tune that we've just heard and the one we'll we'll uh, listen to in a minute, um, the Crash Ensemble are involved in both of those, Linda, right? That's right. And I mean, you know, I know them very well and I have worked with them for 20 years as well. So uh-huh. it's lovely to have them as part of this record. And I kind of feel that you can hear in in all of the tracks that the care that went into it in terms of the, the performers. So, you know, people who really cared about the music and put so much of themselves into it. And, you know, all of these recordings happened just right before lockdown. So mm. in a way, like 
thank God that we got to do this before everything stopped, you know. <laughs> it's funny because uh, like a lot of the great music that I've listened to the last while, um, it has been such a, a source of getting you through these times, but it's funny that it happened just before the world changed. Uh, but just on the actual, uh, the process and how it all came together, Linda, um, so what, why, were you t were all together in the room at any one time or how, how did it actually happen in terms of the recording? Well, so half of the record, I suppose, was recorded in London, and then those songs were recorded in Dublin. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, actually, we just recorded the strings and crash in the studio with Adrian Hart, who's an amazing engineer, mm -hmm. and you know, he's so musical, and of course, the musician himself. So I think you know he brought so much. Um, and Earl actually recorded his vocals separately in Kilkenny in his home studio. Uh -huh. in the middle of uh, of lockdown and things so okay. um all of that came together remotely yeah. um but i mean we had performed the piece lot, you know many times before so there was a really strong sense of connection in that sense you know so i feel that it, it worked out great in that and you know also i can really hear you know kate ellis is playing on this mm -hmm. and uh lisa dowdle and maria ryan and kieran mccabe and i, I kind of feel like um just the the musicianship that they bring to it is incredible as well um, mm. because each, I mean, it's a funny one in a way, like each of these songs have kind of strange tunings because they're built from kind of electronic parts that are often, you yeah. know, recordings of sound from the environment and things like that that are then taken and, and brought into the piece. So um, they had to kind of like retune their string instruments for each yeah. of the songs, which was like really difficult. So just their, their um, sense of tuning is incredible and I can it, with every note I can hear it you know um, and just that kind for of for example like in the third song it, yeah which we'll hear yeah, in a minute the third song is just built on on milking machine yeah, <laughs> so you, you know it's not because that's not like you know of any pitch really but it's kind of slightly in between yeah. our 12 tones so uh, you know there's a little bit of adjustment wow there. I, we're back at the Milky Way Parlor. That's just fantastic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> but just the tactile nature of um, the, the, you know, the, the sonic sort of um, uh, what, what you've put together is like the, the you know, the, the scrapes of the bows on the, on the cello and the violin and all, the, all those little bits. Um, it's exceedingly well recorded. It's so beautiful. I mean, that was really a, a part of, you know, a really important part of the process for me that those tiny little subtle mm. details would be captured um, I suppose because I always you know imagine sound in that way imagine music in that way mm -hmm. that you're it's almost like this kind of dreamscape or something and just to be able to capture that is kind of tricky so mm -hmm. to, to have that come across I feel so glad about that you know? yeah, I mean, actually, when I think back to when I was writing these songs mm -hmm. mm. But yeah so because in, in that was, go on sorry Linda well, I was just looking out at the, the Baltic Sea. I wrote these in Gotland on this little island, you know, off the coast of Sweden. And uh, I, I kind of started off with these sort of electronic drones. And then I would look out onto the, the sea and it was this beautiful kind of dark, saturated blue of the Baltic Sea. And, you know, it might be kind of like night would be falling and the sun would be setting and all this kind of thing. And I would just singing over these drones and then I would I record myself and I would transcribe all that and then I would kind of add the string layers afterwards. So it was built in a way that was really kind of organic in that sense wow um if suddenly the uh, podcast stroke radio medium became visual again there um the uh, <laughs> the 
So, so within that review today, there's just a line where um, they're talking about the combination of those elements and saying, together they conjure an arrestingly melancholic mood, a sonic impression of erosion soothing a seabed and of change being as inevitable as it is imperceptible. Um, <laughs> that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, she says something about how I'm connecting my past and my present, which is kind of mm. really um, insightful of her. You yeah, know, you know, it just says that, the yeah, that combines the your deep interest with a deep way. dive into the ancient art of Irish Shano singing, a style ornamented solo lines that move slowly and measuredly like a tide, slowly soothing its way towards the land. Um, it's rare, that, well, anyway, uh, it's sometimes you really do feel like that somebody totally gets what the, what's going on there, and uh, that's brilliant. So, um, mm. just, just to go back to what I was yeah. sort of asking initially about, you know, uh, putting Shanos in a setting. I mean, it it just when I meant audacious, I, I I meant that in the sense that you know it's it's a brave thing to combine it with other sound, right? And um, just sort of like, I guess it's done so sensitively that that's the answer in itself. Or or anyway, how it felt to work with that form. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that I would be so respectful of it in itself and um, I suppose mindful over the years of hearing very purest traditional singers talk about how any sense of agreement with these songs is kind of sacrilegious or something you know and you know I'm definitely aware of all of that um, but I kind of feel that these weren't pre-existing songs that is touching you know what I mean like these Mm -hmm. I I wrote all of these melodies and, and everything came for me so yeah. in a way I kind of felt a little bit more freedom with that yeah but I'm dealing with these very ancient poems as well you know like you know one is from the 7th century like and, and 16th century yeah. and 18th century the la- you know the last song is the most recent right which is the Kathleen Maud but you know the, the rest of them are, are much older and so that's the four that are, are the uh, opening half of the album the Ekdar Borrow right is that it Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay, um, and then it takes a, a kind of a strange turn after that. <laughs> <In a way. laughs> well, we'll we'll get to that in a little while. But just just this territory is so interesting, Linda. So look, let's just stay with the sea for the minute, right? So, um, just in terms mm-hmm. of it being you know, a source of inspiration and, uh, you know, you described that so beautifully uh, of being uh, in looking at the Baltic Sea while you were composing it. But um, just in terms of, I think what it does is that it really puts um, those uh, Shanos airs into, you know, a kind of a marine setting and they seem so apt in in such a way. I think uh, that it's the perfect place to kind of reimagine it out there in the ocean. I think so too. And I mean, oh, exactly. Yeah, I think it was the, the totally right place to do it. And, and in a way, it maybe seems a little strange that I wrote it there because, of course, I'm from somewhere that is so, uh, you know, connected to the sea as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, why, why not there? But I just happened to be there. Um, but I th- there's that strand that runs throughout the whole record and that has been mentioned by others who have listened to it, you know. And sometimes it's kind of coming from an unconscious place, but I suppose it's yeah. just deep within oneself without even being mm-hmm. aware of it I don't think I was trying to inject it into everything it just kind of naturally tends to emerge I think <laughs> and uh, and I mean okay so um, to be kind of surrounded by it I suppose we, we were just talking before we came on air about uh, 
you know, both being um, lucky enough to have spent time by the sea in the midst of this whole crazy year. And um, so in, in, in my case, I would say that like, it's just like such an incredible place in terms of its healing power. And uh, I won't go into my many ailments, but I would say that like a significant portion of them across a range of uh, types were cured by being close to the sea for six weeks. Um, so it's not just a source of inspiration. Mm. I mean, yeah, just the physical thing of getting in there. Like, I, you know, you'd often feel sometimes, oh my God, it's going to be cold. I'm not going to be able to get in there. And then you'd be, you're always so glad to be afterwards, you know, and you I never spent a lot now the last summer and I'm so glad to be back there. Yeah. Never regret it. Never, ever just regret so, it. You feel so amazing afterwards and so invigorated. Yeah. Um, so, and just to, let's go back to, um, to Irla again. So for the third setting here, um, uh, maybe you can just, you, you mentioned it already, Linda, but what's happening here in terms of the text? So this is um, Galakogos A lot of these songs are actually about and about grief, so about loss. And this is all about, you know, for me, you were the sun and moon, you were the snow on the hills, you were guiding light from God, the star of knowledge before and behind me. Kind of heartbreaking. They're all sort of heartbreaking in a way. Um, mm. And I think, you know, when I, like me, it's actually interesting for me to see the development of this, song because in a way like it actually comes from one single take of me improvising that melody and recording myself wow and i sang it in this very kind of ornate way which i remember saying to irla and he was like oh, sounds like you're singing in some kind of connemara channel <laughs> style or something that wasn't at all my intention it just came mm. out like that you know and um it's lovely to see what he does with it then because of course he adds some of his own ornamentation in there and kind of pushes and pulls it around a little bit you know so i i totally welcome that and i love that and i you know because this this music is composed like it is notated and all of that but there's so much more room for his own interpretation mm. which is you know the reason why he is amazing is that he you know there's something kind of within him that um brings such like heart and emotion to it and um you know like the first time he was sending me some of these recordings back, I remember just totally tearing up. And, and you know, the first time I ever kind of rehearsed these songs with him, it was hard to like not cry actually, because it was just so like, mm -hmm. I was so moved by his interpretation of it as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also to do with sort of knowing someone well, you know, kind mm. of like that personal kinship, you know, yeah. it, you know, I think this might be different if you were sending this to some singer that you've never met before. For and, you sure. know, like I think there's something about, He's in the, the person it's well. in the blood mm -hmm. already. Uh, what, what about the, sorry, mm -hmm. when you say rehearsing, um, does that mean remotely? Well, when we put these songs together initially, there would have been, that was for concerts, so it would have been live rehearsal. Got you. Oh, so that yeah. would have been everyone together yes. in the room. Got yeah. you, yeah. understood. Okay. But for perfect. the recording, there weren't, the, the, there weren't necessarily rehearsals in that traditional sense. You got know? you. So mm -hmm. they, they were kind of happening a little bit separately. Um, let's hear it and uh, yeah so so it's uh, the, the title again is it Galachon August Green Galachon Green perfect okay Hilme Astor 
Bagus Krianku Bagus
can appreciate what might have uh, brought you to tears, Linda. I know, it's th- and it's the way that he sings Doreen at the end. I'm always like, yeah, that lump last in the throat. <laughs> piece is just hard to continue phenomenal. Like mm-hmm. I mean, what I was thinking there was like, we, you know, we, 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 we have such incredible resource when it comes to mining sort of our uh, capacity for some melancholy or sadness or the expression of the same you know like it's a, it's a beautiful thing you know um but um that in particular i, I mean so too. i mean it, i mean it as a, a compliment huge compliment is um it, the the sinking of the titanic is sort of the slightly uh, mm. I, I thought of that in there as well beautiful piece i love mm. Um, I, I think I, you know what in in terms of in terms of all the music I had I, I, I or sorry all the music that I've heard just speaking from experience but I think that there's something what you've done there with Crash Ensemble and Irla and yourself is um, you've conjured something new and uh, yeah it sounds like uh, new territory <laughs> new aquatic place um but look, just on, in terms of the source material, um, c- can you just tell me again what it was that was the beginning of that piece? Well, that was the drone of the milking machine. Yeah, and I, I thought I thought it was quite funny actually a few mm. weeks ago because it was played on BBC Three Radio. The farming, and the farming it was this one. very you know BBC <laughs> presenter voice. Yeah, yeah, and I was just like, oh, does he know that smoking machine? <laughs> it's kind of a nice mo- full circle moment. Yeah, full circle. That's that's the kind of circle <laughs> I'm talking about. Um, that's beautiful. I, I mean, look, just... I, I know we've been in this parlour before, but just in terms of um, talking about field recordings, Linda, just in your day job, right, you've just come from a class um, in Glasgow, university and uh so you're you what, what was the class that you were doing just now it's kind of called sound walk slash field recording and it was originally meant as some way out of um you know lockdown situation where we could all socially distance way outdoors and go and make recordings of sounds from the natural environment and discuss them and mm-hmm. see the musicality in them and kind of put them together into music down the line and um, but of course we're not actually allowed to do that but People, you know, in the class have been really engaged with it and they've gone off and made their own recordings every week and mm-hmm. they've been really excited about it. And it's lovely to see that. And so, you know, a lot of them have arrived to Glasgow from like China and America and different places and um, they've been in quarantine, you know, so they've just sort of come out of quarantine and now they're able to go out and they're, and they're you know, experiencing all of this mm. for the first time. So it's it's really nice for them to even get to to meet and see each other, even if it is. Um, in a virtual sense, mm-hmm. but um, to to make some kind of connection with each other. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was I, the last time we spoke, we were talking about the the composition of your composition class. Boom, boom. But just in terms of the the different nationalities, <laughs> uh, but also, I mean, the the idea that um, you know that that people are out in their own field, but they're combining it in new ways uh, that are from for from your point of view, is it working, um, Linda, or is it just too difficult to say? 
or too early to say? No, I think it is working. I think um, I think it's lovely to see that um, you know maybe young, some young composers who might have had a massive disconnect in their mind, or, whereas you know environmental sound or your sonic environment and music mm-hmm. is being completely different things, and kind of making connections between those things and hearing rhythms in yeah you know in traffic and hearing mm-hmm. you know pitches in uh, just mechanical machinery or whatever you know and sort of coming back like somebody today was saying oh um i heard this beeping of a car horn and it was an a flat or something you know and all this so they're kind of really tuning into mm. all of that which is really lovely to see but also you know the fact that like it must be a very difficult time to be it's a very difficult time to be anything human uh, but it, like to be a first year in a college from another part of the world or wherever um, very challenging experience to be in the current way it's set up but um but my point being that within that as students of composition um they would be you know they're in a totally new place or they're hearing totally different things it must be a very stimulating place to start something like this as in investigating it this way i think so and i think uh, you know i really feel for them because a lot of them you know, have come here on their own and they don't know anybody and, um, mm. you know, in any way that we can to try to have them feel in some way sense of a community um, because there is a really good sense of community here in music and in the arts and uh, it's a pity that they're not getting to experience that yet and I'm sure they will, mm. hopefully down the line. Um, yeah. But to have them feel, um, you know, excited about something new, I think is important at this point because it's so easy to, to become disillusioned. Um, yeah. You know, a friend of mine, actually, Jonathan Nangle, who's, who's a great composer based in Dublin, he um, gave the talk virtually on Wednesday, and they were really excited about that because he, could, he spoke about things that, as he said, are pandemic-friendly, that they can work away on themselves mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be necessarily writing for the BC Symphony Orchestra, which might not happen, you know, for a long time. Yeah. So things that you can actually achieve yourself at home with, yeah. like, toy pianos and recording and installations and all this kind of thing. So it was really lovely for them to see that. I think they're fired up again now, so I'm, I'm really glad to see that. Great. Uh, what about when it comes to the actual process of a class, right? So how many people can you see on your screen or how many people do you teach to at any one time? It could be maybe 20. Okay. And so it's relatively small. I have a small. lot of students who are one-to-one, so I'm like a mentor mm-hmm. to, to them. So I would have them for... You know, it could be a number of years where you get get to know them and go very deep into their music. You know, so mm-hmm. um, so the, it's a little bit of a mixture of of that very close mentorship and, and more group class. Um, just to go back to your own work, uh, Linda, again, right? So um, when it comes to you know your 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 track record, uh, if we can call it that, up to this point, is that you have been incredibly brave working with you know, various different forms. Like you know, the, the last time we spoke about your Moog compositions, um, in the second half of the record, there's uh, more space for the electronic music, and and I know we're going to close today with Discordia, but so is is it something that like it continues to be um, something that you pursue is combining those elements oh for sure I mean it's probably the thing that has been the the biggest strength through everything I've done you know mm-hmm. I mean I, I was just kind of recently asked to write uh, a short opera for Irish National Opera and it's they've done, done this you know really kind of innovative project where they've asked 20 composers to write 20 
tiny operas that are only six minutes long kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've written one based on the poetry of Dear Negrifa. And um, it's all about, it's called Gleic, meaning all, so it's all about kind of trying to make connections and how we're all experiencing connections only through video now and not in, in a human form and all this. So it's all about that. But in that, I use recordings of mobile phone interference and glitch and um, electronics with um, string ensemble and soprano and mezzo-soprano. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. trying to think of opera in a different way that it doesn't have to be something so kind of formal and mm-hmm. um, overly... Um, dramatic in a way but it's something that can be very relating to our lives and, and using again this is using kind of field recordings as well because it, it does from the outsider point of view as in I'm speaking from my side from my own point of view that it does seem like when you when you talk about or think about even classical music or opera for instance that it's a kind of a closed thing that that has somehow had been sealed off or has a full stop but I clearly that's not the case mm. Well, I think, you know, over the years, people have often asked me, how come you haven't written opera? Mm. And I suppose I felt a little bit detached from it in the sense that it just isn't something that I really experienced much of in my own background growing up or anything. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of felt like it was for other people or something. You know? mm-hmm. And then um, I think being first introduced to it, it would have been through, um, let's say, Mozart or Wagner or something. And, you know, it's so kind of, hyper expressive and it's super dramatic and it's you know mm-hmm. and then you know like marriage of figaro or something you read the text from the italian to english and they're talking about someone running around in a garden and and mm-hmm. the way it's sung is so dramatic that it's like <laughs> life or and death and i always felt i shied away from that a little bit i was always more kind of yeah and I, you know yeah. i was i always kind of felt for me that i was more drawn to things that were kind of understated or immersive yeah. or not really about drama, I think, in a way. So I kind of shied away from it, I think. And yeah. even I was kind of questioning that about myself when I was asked to do this. And I thought, well, actually, could I create something that isn't about the drama, but it's about something else, you know? Yeah, the new, all the new drama that we know, the little drama. And it dramas. can be about connection and it can be about emotion. Brilliant. Yeah, wow. Um, that's the amazing. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know what? The thing is that, that that's kind of my experience of it as well as of it being, you know, wow, life or death now. But um, mm. yeah, the subtleties yeah. you're talking about that. Um, Linda, can we just move on to one of the pieces uh, that I just want to take from the second half? So Kyrie, right? So is this, can you talk about a little bit about this? Well, I mean, it's always interesting for me to look back on the record and, and like where this were written and where they happened and where they kind of manifested themselves. Um, this one actually was recorded in Brooklyn in my apartment when I was living in New York. And so it was just me sort of improvising vocals in my apartment there and um, layering them, and adding sort of synthesizers and things on them. So it's very self-contained as in it's all just for me in a room. You know, it's not, yeah. there's no external... Um, personnel involved or anything yeah and, and um, just w- in terms in a way like the idea of our would be to kind of connecting to um, the whole idea of, of requiem I suppose I always love choral music and singing in choirs as mm-hmm. well and uh, one of my favourite pieces would be um, by the French composer Durflay and his requiem and I think it was, it was like a funny thing where I used to be in New York and sometimes I would feel a little bit overwhelmed by the intensity of Manhattan and I would get on the subway and I would have my headphones and I would listen to the Kyrie from Durofle's Requiem. And then I would feel suddenly everything was OK again. You know, it was just like that one it was always that one piece I always went back to. So there was something about that Kyrie that I 
that just fed into to this piece then. Wow, beautiful. Um, part of me wants to go and hear the source material, but uh, let's, uh, will we just hear uh, your response? Great, thanks.
Once again, from from Ocean's Floor and Linda Buckley, that's Kyrie. Um, Linda, it's um, direct from Brooklyn, that one, but it's overall, uh, with, with this and uh, the album, you've got a chance to kind of, you know, put things into shape in a context, an album context, and that must have been uh, an enticing, or sorry, an exciting prospect. Mm. I mean, I was first by the label, the London label NNC, and you know, they, they were very kind of well-known classical label, and um, they asked me what pieces did I want to put on this record, and it, it was really difficult to decide, actually, and mm-hmm. I, you know, because I suppose one of the things that they encouraged was that it should be a kind of a an overview of some of the things that you do, you know, but then mm-hmm. I kind of felt I wanted to be um, disconnected in a way, so I didn't want just a series of pieces that had no to one another so I kind of felt I did want some thread that runs throughout the whole thing I suppose Mm. the thread is the electronic and instrumental combination but also maybe Mm -hmm. something about atmosphere or something about immersion I mean even just listening to that there now I'm sitting in a room uh, with really kind of bright here earlier now the night has just fallen throughout the course of the piece (laughs) (laughs) lovely to see the night falling in and it's it's very much a kind of an autumnal or a winter piece I would say I mean most of the things on the record are I'd say night time and winter (laughs) Uh, yeah they should be like a seasonal um, sort of warning on the uh, cover (laughs) I know (laughs) I have to get a little bit nervous if anyone says that they're listening to it and it's the morning it's not really going to be for yeah, uh, it's just look. Okay, what what well, what what I was thinking of listening to it is that just about you know the, there's a kind of um, you know you really have to I mean it, there's it's an active thing listening and you have to kind of surrender and it's you know you mentioned in uh, in the course of the chat there about you know what what now is with the way it's broken up in terms of time and how we use our time and how many demands there are in your time at any one given moment but that um when it does when you turn to face the music and it's there and just like what we've just listened to um yeah i mean there is so much to be gained from giving it that time and um and in that sense i totally see what you mean about the autumnal and winter thing as well but um yeah beautiful um so I would and just I suppose a lot of the other music love thing, you know, like getting lost in as opposed to sometimes I like music that like where you almost just let it wash over you as well and yeah. not even mm. pay that much closer attention. In a way like that it's just the kind of atmosphere around you. There's something about that that I like. Sure. Well. well look, just in terms of the question about the album, what what I was really asking thinking that it was or is you know beautifully it ties together so well um so it was just i was just wondering a sort of at, at what point did you kind of or, or you know how did that shape come about but it just seems to each piece really seems to speak to each other and i think well i'm glad you think that actually because they do for me and um you know i kind of went through different thought processes of what could be part of this and initially there was thoughts of like having pieces for orchestra and choir and all this kind of thing I think that but I think that's another record I don't Mm. think it's this you know what I mean and I think yeah trying to kind of make those connections where they're not there I think wouldn't make any sense for this you know I I just think uh, and also with that label which I you know was looking up what they do but I mean it's it's really great that you're on that because there's a 
a really good network. I mean, you'll be heard by so many people. And also, you know, as I said earlier, we're speaking on a day when you've got a four-star review in the Guardian newspaper. Uh, but it is it must be a bit of a thrill to know that, you know, as we listen back, that there's chances are on this very day, lots of new people listening to your music. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's kind of amazing to me to think that, you know, it's like something, it's like your little child go out into the world and you hope they'll be all right you know it's kind of yeah. a bit like that as well. first day at school I mean, just while ago i got a message from, like, from the irish embassy in london or something and you know congratulating me so it's kind of like sort of crazy to me to think that they're hearing it you yeah know? you'll be in it's the aurus that, you know, you'll be at the aurus for christmas dinner such a kind of an <laughs> <laughs> well i'd be delighted yeah, officially sanctioned i i know so, that michael um, would love it <laughs> Yeah, Brilliant. sorry, I sorry. I, no, but it's, um, it, it must... You know, I, I kind I'm, of feel that, like, this music came from such a personal, kind of intimate place, and then yeah. to think of it being heard like that is kind of more funny to me, and kind of, it's lovely, of course. Um, mm. It's not what I expected, really. But, uh, you know, you never know who to come across these things, and, and they find their own way out in the world. Mm. You kind of have to let them go in a certain sense, you know, because I, I think it was that initial fear when it was, you know, you'd be signing off and different things to do with it and that that initial thing that like you know this is the day that it, you have to let it go and it's a bit like yeah. oh, you know yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know part of you is sort of happy about it it's bittersweet because also it's like saying goodbye to a part of yourself or something you know yeah. it's funny and uh, and then in terms of with NMS, or sorry, NMS, NMS, well, in NMS, uh, that's the name of the label, right? I got that right. NMC, 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 a bigger pardon. So, is that NM, are, are NMC, you going to yeah. release more on that label, or what's the plan? Not necessarily. No, I think like what they do. This is a kind of a series that they do called Davy Discs, which is kind of to do with composers who are kind of wanting to put an output, a, a body of work that they've worked on for a number of years. And um, yeah. you know, I feel like that's kind of marked uh, full stop in that. Really, I mean, part of me thinks maybe the next thing I'll do will be like a noise glitch album or something you know, like, right. and not at all kind of gentle and immersive sort of the opposite in a way yeah. I mean who knows or something that's electronica or something a totally but different I season not, no I mean because it is it's a, yeah exactly maybe a, a spring summer field yeah <laughs> I can't imagine that happening, but, uh, the um, Linda Buckley's so spring would, summer collection I would like to, to do an electronic record Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and just Gosh. when it when it comes to that, um, and Linda, so yeah, I don't think it will be them. When it comes to that, let's like when you mentioned there about you know the setting in which you composed a couple of those pieces in uh, Sweden and in in Brooklyn, but um, would it involve you know for you to kind of go in that direction? Would it involve a dedicated time where you're you know immersed in uh, the electronic machines as opposed to in your uh, classical work, compositional world? Um, I mean, those things are always just feeding into each other. So I never really... You don't take um, off one hat and put the other spend on. Spend loads of time in one or the other. Not yeah. really, no. no. Yeah. I think I... Although sometimes I do go down a rabbit hole of electronics, which is lovely for ages, you know. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of enjoy that. Um, but then, like, you often find maybe... I found in the last few years that, you know, just the way it's happened very accidentally, but nicely, is that I might be working on an electronic piece and then I'll be working on maybe a purely instrumental piece and then I'm working on one with the two together so mm -hmm. it's never I never really tire any of them because you're moving to a different thing then you know so um, yeah. 
you know, be inform and kind of spark off ideas for the other, which is which is lovely. I think. Uh, I, I think it's beautiful the way that they 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 coexist. Um, but Linda, just so on the final piece that we're going to listen to from the album from Ocean's Floor is Discordia. So, is there something you want to say about this one? Well, this piece is kind of a wild card in a way, and it's funny because in, in different reviews, it's the one that's commented on a lot because yeah. of its strangeness compared to the rest of the record <laughs> in yeah. a way. Um, and it was written as well in, in uh, connecting to New York, um, and it's timely. It's almost that it's coming up to election time because it's very much about that kind of thing. <laughs> it's about the kind of strange mood at the time in New York of uh, you know, when Trump just got voted in and all that kind of thing. I know I shouldn't even be mentioning names. <laughs> oh, but, no, you know, look, it's okay because like, we're, we're going to end the program with a piece of music that you're, uh, you should just turn up the footage and, and sorry, put this music on and <laughs> put it put it with the obscene <laughs> yeah. like TV show that is America right now. So that was, so you were talking about four years ago of being in Brooklyn, right? But I mean, this this is a funny piece because I wrote for Toby Burgess, who's this great um, London squashionist, and he's really interesting because he's, you know, um, he's into like warp label and he's like into electronica and kind of like he's, he's up for anything in a way. And yeah. um, I saw him being instrument. So I've written a piece from before and I was like, oh my God, what's that? And um, it just was this, this kind of instant thing of like, I really would love to write for it. He was actually playing an arrangement of an Arvo Part piece on uh-huh. it. Um, which, so it was this really beautiful kind of glassy sort of texture. And, uh, and really what, sorry, what, what's gorgeous. the instrument? And, you know, it's it's called a Cana Sonora or it's, called, it's loads of different names. But it's a very kind of unusual and rare instrument. And I think... Uh-huh. It hasn't been used very much. There's not so many of them in the world. It's basically a series of aluminium rods uh-huh. that are rubbed with rosined gloves to produce these kind of very pure tones that sound like sine tones. Sounds really electronic, wow. but it's completely acoustic, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think he maybe was in some instrumental showcase um, in Chicago and saw this guy who had these instruments and he was like wow what's this and, and kind of no way, I think he's the only one to have one in in this part of the world how, I think there's to, a couple of them in America but to refer to our to refer to our previous conversation how come Bjork hasn't had this guy on stage I know totally. <laughs> like, uh, that kind of thing that she would love I don't yeah. know because you know, yet, several, you know? Uh, several times I've been discussed before like um, I know exactly I know she's always just the, you remember the, right wa- the, water thing, the water thing, the water thing that turned up in the last album. That was exactly that, the water. <laughs> and then yeah. before that, there was that React table, which was I think I mentioned to you before that at one of the Glastonbury's, yep. I, I saw her with the guy from LFO was playing a React table thing, which had just Gosh. been brought. Uh, you know, they, I think it was developed in Barcelona University, and had she'd bought the prototype, and it was on her stage show within the year, and um, but. I mean, it was twice I've gone, am I actually losing my mind or is that something that I've never even dreamt of before? I know. But um, yeah, sorry, I cut it you, was, you I off there. I remember at the time it huh? so amazing. But if you think to people like Kate Bush, you know, when she was, you know, someone like Kate Bush, and she, she was one of the first artists to ever use a Fairlight synthesizer. You know, she was mm. totally, like, she knew the, the latest things that were, she really wanted to explore all of that. So it's, it, that has been really inspiring too. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you can draw a lot. You can you, because, of Joby. because of what? With Joby? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, no, no, but I, I, as you're saying, you can draw, there's such lineage there, you can see in that sort of sense of exploring and, oh, and yeah. innovation. Um, but yeah, with with Joby, like he um, was playing this instrument, which is very kind of pure and beautiful sounding, mm-hmm. and it sounds almost like a pyramid or something. So can you, can you just spell um, it, so, so I just, uh, just for, from the point this. of view of uh, the Googling of it, uh, what is it, what, what, how, does it sp- how is it spelled in there? It's called a couple of different names, but one of the names that you come across is Cana Sonora. So it's C-A-N-N-A-S-O-N-O-R-A. Uh-huh. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So some people call it alum- aluminium harp. Oh, <laughs> right. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's an aluminium harp. Uh, this I, I, I can't wait to... Um, well, I, I absolutely... Once this conversation's over, I'm going straight to find out more about Canna Sonora. But, um, so, <laughs> it so, looks so, beautiful. Does well. it, yeah. I've, I look from, from Bush to Bjork to Burgess. Is, is, it, is it Joby Burgess? Is that his name? <laughs> is he Mr. Burgess? Joby Burgess, yeah. He's Mr. I Burgess. I mean, with an instrument like that, the one and only Joby Uh, okay so yeah so we we should call him we should set up a third Skype line and get him to play it but um God, so I, I mean, I had not, when I, when I asked you to, to describe, to, to get us into Discordia, I had no idea how great this story was going to get. But um, so, so tell us then how, uh, where it went from there. Yeah, so I suppose the, when you see this instrument, like I, I kind of felt the instinct would be to write a really pure, beautiful kind of harmonic piece where it's really clean and gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, wouldn't it be cool to actually pair pair this with something really kind of dirty and noisy and make it really extreme and intense and dark? And because mm-hmm. the instrument isn't that at all, you know. And um, so th- I built this whole electronic side of it, which I does use recordings of that instrument. I went down to his studio outside London to record, and um, I kind of you know use that as part of the electronic uh, aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's also. Um, Synth, you know, mocks into recordings and things like that in it as well. So, um, all of that gets kind of and my own vocals that are layered to be this like this kind of scary choral thing that happens later in it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I think he was a bit like he was delighted with it because I think you know when he asked me to write a piece, I think he was kind of maybe saying something very kind of beautiful, and, <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm going to go in the direction, with it. and he was very excited about that. But and and again, I guess it's it's now that you have broken it down, right? I um, I I totally feel what what you were feeling with the discordant nature of the society that was about to be broken apart by, you know, or as it's still being broken apart in front of our eyes. But you know, so that really was where you were coming from in terms of the the provenance of the writing. Yeah, and I was starting to look at a lot of visual art, which is to do with like dystopian future and kind of burning cities and mm-hmm. strange spirals. And it was almost, I was almost thinking of this almost kind of Blade Runner kind of idea. A- anything in, in particular, Linda? Any, anything uh, in particular? I mean, Jesus, it was like being in New York when you're writing this stuff and exploring and researching dystopian art, you've got a few places to go there. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely picturing... Um, you know, kind of mass scrapers and sorry, say that um, again. A kind of a really huge skyscrapers. Yep. You know, and just which I was kind of thinking of 
Manhattan, but a sort of a darker, dystopian future version of it in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what I was seeing in my head when I was writing it, I think. Okay, well, it was about four years away, <laughs> the thing you were seeing in your head. I know, <laughs> I obviously was, I was predicting it somehow. How prescient of you. Um, yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> just just on that thing about the being in a landscape with the when you're comp- composing, um, I, I maybe we've talked before, but I, I, you know, there's a Jan Hilliard album with the... Um, Oh, which ensemble with a, uh, you know, like a vocal, uh, oh God. Um, but anyway, um, the, no, it's it's Jan Garbrick and the Hilliard Ensemble. What am I talking Jan about? Jan Garbrick and the Hilliard Ensemble. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I remember Thank I used you. to love hearing that because he used to play it on your show on, yeah. on the radio. Yeah, <laughs> well, I always loved that Here, this is the thing. I bought that record in, in uh, New York and... I think that I I bought the record, I put it, a CD, I put it in the Walkman and I walked outside and I don't remember a thing for about four days because <laughs> it was the perfect <laughs> music to the yeah. architecture of the place. You know, there was this like, um, it, there was this, you know, uh, incredible space uh, between the voices and uh, between uh, the saxophone and uh, and the space was the skyscrapers that I was looking at and all around me, you know. Um, so you know the one I'm talking about. Which, Linda, do you do you have time if we play a bit? Oh, of I that? love that record. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, I'd love it. Love yeah. it. <laughs> let's do that before we go. That the hang on now. Let's I'll find it here. Um, Linda, just while we wait for the thing to power back up, one thing that I saw uh, mm. t- uh, today that I might talk to you about before, sorry, talk to you before we finish is um, it was also in the same Guardian that you got a f- the bloody great review was um, about mm-hmm. Mozart, Mozart's violin. Did you see that story? No, I, had, I haven't actually. Oh yeah, it's in it's in the today's one, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, some guy who's got the violin that he pl- that he composed loads of shit on, so and he's touring. Austria or whatever. He's in the Villa Vienna Philharmonic. You'll know what that means. But um Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's like he's got the violin in his hands and the tours around with a couple of security guards and stuff. I thought that was hilarious. As oh, in what an oh amazing God. thing to it's so valuable. I know. And uh but yeah, but the, you you can read the um you can you can read the story yourself there actually. Okay, so look, uh, just a quick diversion while we're uh, here. I think it's a good time to uh, go back to Donald Deneen's mind circa 2002 and uh, listening <laughs> to uh, the Hilliard Ensemble along with Jan Garbrick, and this is Parse Mihi Domine.
Um, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, it, music is architectural, right, uh, Linda? Mm. It's so beautiful to hear that again after over 20 years, I think. It really reminds me of yeah. when I was kind of embarking on this whole life in music and, and hearing that from you playing it on the radio and kind of <laughs> being so excited and kind of being excited about choral yeah. music and all of that. Just on that point, right, you know, um, I think there's just when it comes to, you know, as a as a uh, as a somebody who who's on the other side of the music maker line and um and I don't make it but I, I appreciate it but um you know, just the kind of buzz of how close to, to actually making music can you get. And there's been a few parts in my life that I've been lucky to be in kind of situations where I'm very close. Uh, but when it comes to DJing on the radio and having the ears of uh, the future musicians and future composers, um, I think that's that that's a tiny little part of making music. Because, of course, um, I mean it's hugely important. <laughs> I mean it's been an yeah. amazing part of all of our lives, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Oh my God, my pleasure. Also, what I was thinking when I was hearing it, and um, in reference to the same thing, is that, um, so you know, it was on a commercial radio station, and also, look, I will declare that I know nothing or very little about classical music. I know a, a bit, but like, it's just something that, like, in my own journey through sound, that. Um, there's been many instances of, of amazing music speaking to me. Uh, but um, so that's kind of like how I come across it. But also, you know, in terms of playing it on Radio Ireland as it was then, um, <laughs> you know, there was like a funny rare guard action that would happen where you'd have to turn up at somebody, some uh, <clears throat> chief executive's door uh, the next day and explain yourself or something like that. You know, that happened a few times. <laughs> And it was absolutely in reference to, you know, my love of Arvo Parts was like exploding all over the show <laughs> and <laughs> consequently in the faces of some of the people who were like going, this guy, got to get rid of this guy. So, um, but there was a few times where I had to kind of like talk to the taxman about poetry, you know what I mean? So it was, um, <laughs> but there was a f an actual problem that started happening because of one piece of Arvo part, which was, I'm sure it was around that period that you were listening, um, where I can't remember which piece of music, it could have been like Festina Lente or something like that, where there's a, mm -hmm. a gap of a few minutes of total silence. And there's this machine called the OptiMod, which was like a kind of a robo jock type of thing um, used to interpret silence as a breakdown of the system and and a couple of times the head engineer from today fm was hauled from his bed and had to come in and fix the thing because i played experimental minimalist comp compositions <laughs> <laughs> well we're so glad that you did well, that, had such a huge effect on that's that. called getting your own back right but um <clears throat> but there was <laughs> another thing that i was able to do about cheating ads which i'm legally uh, obliged not to talk about so <laughs> but it was around the same period of uh, the spirit of punk there was a little bit of a spirit in there because um you know the the classical thing was one thing but this just when i was kind of the further back i got shifted towards midnight and beyond the less they came to asking me what is this bullshit <laughs> 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 but you know so okay so look in terms of the way music works and how it goes around and what happens when somebody's you know i've, I've had these conversations with Oh, God, uh, controllers of music on radio stations, right? And, um, you know, uh, so what, what I'm trying to say is, 
okay, there's a format and there's a playlist and there's a way that you're deciding Hotel California is still relevant, right? But what I'm saying is that, like, people's taste is way more you know comprehensive and way more uh sort of like there's 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 so much more to feel and i think you're insulting the intelligence of the people that you're you're you know what i mean and i feel that like it's just a matter of exposing people in order for them to develop a taste for certain things and i'm saying they you know but you know what i mean is in in terms of audience or listeners or so on and so forth so like but my argument for 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 including everything and trying to open that out always fell on deaf ears you know like always always because with within that world it's just that is the opposite of how it works in terms of keeping the playlist narrow and hitting the buttons that they know you know whatever their research <laughs> but um mm. but so i don't know i i'm sure you stand on the side of the argument of saying that like we're just exposed to too much of the same thing oh well i mean totally and i suppose even for myself and my own teaching and things that like, you know, you could stay on the side of talking about purely classical music or something, even to my own students, but actually they might be looking at very particular thing in, in a piece that they're working on. And I'll know exactly what might be helpful to them. And it might be in something like death metal, or it might yeah. be in, you know, noise or in ambient electronic, or it mm. might be in medieval music or whatever. Like, so it's not, I, I, I'm absolutely completely free about that. And I feel mm -hmm that it, you know sometimes you see the light going on in their brains and they're like oh so this can also be relevant you know and it's it's not that it has to you have to park it at the door because suddenly you close the door and then you're like in a conservatory and you have to become yeah. something else you know i'm like yeah. what well what do you love you know and yeah um oh for sure i mean i've never i mean I'm, i've been lucky too that like i've never really uh, felt there any need to be any barriers between genres like it was always so free yeah. flu you know for, fluid to me and i you know I'm so glad of that because um, well, I kind of try and instill that in, in yeah, people that, that I teach as well. I, I was just going to say that it's it's great that you're in the position that you have that philosophy because that will then, no more than the sort of open-minded DJ who on the radio in a much simpler kind of version of it, but the, you know what I mean? As in, mm. the, if you're the keeper of the gate, then, you know, that's mm. an important position and that's a great place to have that. I, I mean, I hope so. And, I, I you know, you can kind of, that um, that sense of, of acceptance of them too as people because they you know there's no sense that you have to parse these things out or yeah. you know keep them as you know locked away you know sort of guilty pleasures or whatever some of them like love electro pop and I'm like yeah great you know like that yeah. why not bring that into what you're doing you know or whatever like it's you know you don't have to uh, feel that those things are so mm -hmm. uh, removed from each other I think mm -hmm. oh uh, well, look, I think, um, Linda, it's been so wonderful talking to you again. And um, each conversation, I learned so much. But I just want to bring it back to Discordia before we close um, today, because uh, it seems so apt for the for the times uh, that we're living. Um, but just, uh, is there anything else about it that we want to hear before? Um, we've heard about Joby's um, amazing uh, contribution. And, and, and it's just him and you uh, in the actual piece, right? Mm. I mean, and, and just to say as well that like you probably notice that there's these kind of clouds of sound that are mm. happening very early on. Yeah. And that's just from the instrument. Like it's not, there's no extra processing or anything. It's just the way that the sound naturally decays because it takes ages for the sound to die, which is really cool. And you can do loads of that. So I kind of thought, what about if, you know, like part of learning to play this instrument 
is that you try and cleanly die you know kill kill the sound before the next uh, yeah. pitch happens or whatever but yeah. i kind of deliberately don't do that because i kind of want this massive wash of sound to, to be kind of a little bit stranger in a way yeah and uh and i mean you know we were talking earlier about uh, when we were listening to kiri about um kiri um about the light changing where you were uh it just reminded mm-hmm. me of something yeah i mean it's a it's a thing where i think it's um we can just give a, t- a trigger warning to people that the light may change where you are while you listen to this chord <laughs> yeah Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and the seasons may change but you will wake up on the other side um, Linda on that note uh, thank you so much once again for taking all of this time from your very busy schedule and congratulations once more on From Ocean's Floor and uh, that's all from thank me you. as well here on this episode of uh, Make Me an Island um, so we're going to play out with Discordia <laughs>